Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. My family and I have been attending Beacon for a few years, and we love how the pastors reason through the scriptures every Sunday. We love the fellowship, the kids' classes, the singing, and oh, the cafe is great. So if you're in the neighborhood, we'd love to meet you. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 10.30, or 12 noon. We're located at 65 East Williston Avenue in East Williston, New York. For more information, visit us at visitbeacon.com. See you soon. Well, good afternoon. So I'm hoping you guys are already enjoying your new year. I'm sure you guys are uh, excited. It is 2018, and I have a sense that a number of you wanted to, you heard about the baptism, so you came to the later service, or you couldn't brave the cold in the morning. I don't know which it was, but uh, I'm glad to see uh, all of uh, you here. And uh, we are kicking off a new series. It's uh, The Me I Want to Be. And uh, it is uh, a great book for us to kind of kick off the new year because this is the resolution setting time of the year, right? I mean, this is the time we sort of start to evaluate last year and we set goals for the upcoming year. Maybe we decide to try on a few new habits and see how they fit for 2018 to see what kind of changes we might be able to make. We can ask the question, You know, who do I want to be? Or what do I want out of my life this year? We get to ask ourselves questions like this. Now, maybe you're kind of looking back at 2017 and you're thinking to yourself, like, what what just happened? Like, how, how is it already 2018? Like, I feel like we sort of just got started and it's over. And maybe you're wondering, what actually did happen in 2017, like, to me? And did I accomplish and did I become all that I wanted in the last 12 months? So there's a neat little thought experiment that you can do. You can, you can go into the future right now, right? So let's imagine for a moment that it is 12 months into the future, this day, in 2018, 19, that's what I meant, 19, <laughs> 2019, I got that wrong in the second service and people corrected me, I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about, but 2019, and you're looking back, right, so you're looking back over the last 12 months, and what are you telling yourself? A year from now, what are you saying about the last year? Is there something that you're hoping stands out? Is there something that you hoped you achieved? Or maybe there's a relationship that you want restored. Or maybe you're hoping for a new career or more money. That's always a great goal, right? You're thinking to yourself, I just want more money this year than I had last year. We always add that in there thinking somehow that will make it all good. What do you want to be talking about on this day 12 months from now? What does future self look back at 2018 and say, yes, that is exactly what I hoped happened? What would it be? Because the only way you're going to see that is by starting today to make that a reality. Now, when you were young, 
you wanted to accomplish certain things. Maybe you were into sports and so you wanted to win on the ball field or maybe sports weren't your, maybe you were thinking if I could just get into all county or if I could, if I could just get certain grades, I want to increase my rank, you know, in, in school, like where, you know, you have, you have these desires, you have these goals. Maybe it was just to be in the in crowd. Maybe you were hoping to just be connected to the people that were important or popular and you wanted to, maybe you just wanted to stop being picked on. You had these, these goals that you would set. And I don't know that really much has changed when we move into adulthood. So you think back to the year that your team won the Little League Championship. Yes, this was a great year. So back then, did did you find the peace and the joy that made your life complete? Or did that victory very quickly begin to fade and be replaced by your next pursuit, the next thing you needed so that you could feel good and at peace. Maybe you thought, when I finally get the girl. So let's say you did. You finally got the girl. You can look at her right now if she's there because you got her, right? You finally got the girl. Did everything suddenly become perfect? Maybe you landed that job or you got into that school. Now you've arrived. That was it, right? Maybe you got a little older in life and you said, listen, if I could just, as soon as I have kids, as soon as I'm blessed with these little angels that are running around, these little me's, right? I've repopulating the world with little images of me. You know, once that happens, I mean, how long before you started to wonder, are they really angels? <laughs> Are we sure that's what just happened? Maybe when you finally fit into the size six or you just want to see your abs one more time <laughs> before you die. You know, maybe whenever you turn that head, right? Maybe it's when you're hit on in the, the cold and flu section at the pharmacy at Walmart. Like, that's a thing that actually happens. It actually happened to someone in my household. So let let me, we'll take a little quiz, a little poll here. How how many of you think it happened to either me or Cheryl? Who do you think it happened to? (laughs) Why does everyone just assume, yes, it happened to Cheryl? She said something like, I am old enough to be your mother. But it's, I don't know. (laughs) How long before we realize that those things don't really make us happy, that they're fleeting experiences? Are we still inexperienced enough, or, or dare I say, naive enough to believe that when we accomplish some thing, whatever that thing is, that then we will be happy, that then we will flourish and we'll find peace for our souls? Or has it begun to dawn on you that what you really want is to feel, to be fully alive inside? So that despite your circumstances, despite your your, your situation, despite the challenges that you face or the successes that come your way, that you experience a settled sort of contentment, a peace and a joy 
that surpasses understanding. Because that's what we really hunger for, to experience a kind of inner freedom, to taste joy and, and love in abundance. Maybe you think that the path toward that will be self-discovery. If I just really understand who I am, that's what I need to do. I just need to, I, I need to find myself. You know, we talk in these ways sometimes. I just need to find it who I am. It's, a, it's about me now. I just need to figure that out. So, you know, we take personality assessments and we surround ourselves with people who will sort of, you know, give us value or kind of establish worth in the eyes of the world or whatever it might be. I always take personality assessments, you know, these things that you take online or you're doing them for, you know, some other organization or whatever. I, I, just, I love them. I love to try to figure out what I'm, I'm really like. And so I'm a, a D on the DISC. If you know the DISC profile, I'm a high D. And then on the, the Meyer-Briggs, I'm sure a lot of you have taken the Meyer-Briggs, I'm an ENTJ. And so if you read about an ENTJ and a high D on the DISC and you merge them together, it pretty much explains why most people think I'm mean. Because I am. I'm reading it and I'm, I'm like, yes, this is exactly right. This is who I am. So now, of course, I know who I am on the inside. But somehow it doesn't settle the soul. Simply knowing who I am, it doesn't actually answer the questions. Maybe it doesn't matter simply who I am. Maybe it matters who I am becoming. So who is it that I want to be? Is there a you that you want to be? Do you have a picture in your head? Do you have a longing in your heart in the quietest and deepest parts of your soul? Is there a you that you want to be? Because I think maybe it's time for us to ask some different kinds of questions. Not merely, who am I? But who am I to God? Maybe these are the kinds of questions we have to ask. Maybe we don't ask, what do I want out of life this year? Maybe instead we have to ask, what does God want from my life this year? What does God want from me? So to answer that, to start us off in this year, we're gonna, I'm going to give you a simple statement, a little creed, a mini creed for the new year. So open up in a Bible to John chapter 1, verse 1. John chapter 1, verse 1. We get to see this idea here, and it sort of begins way earlier than in John chapter 1. And it's the beginning of our creed, which is simply, there is a God. There is a God. See, the Bible claims that there is a God, but it, it never sets out to prove it. It just sort of assumes it, like in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. What a great way for the Bible to begin. It doesn't need to philosophically defend it or anything like that. The Bible sort of assumes that any reasonable person who looks out at the world will say, well, there is a God. In the beginning, God. He simply is self-evident. Then the Bible gives us a little bit more detail about this God. They say there is a God, but in John 1.1, we find out that Jesus is that God. John 1.1, 1, 1. in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
Jump down to verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. So the Bible says actually Jesus is that God. Then it goes further where Jesus himself self makes it plain that he viewed himself. It's not just what people said about him. He viewed himself. So flip over to John chapter 10, verse 22. John chapter 10, verse 22. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered around him saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. Jump down to verse 30. I and the Father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. So apparently Jesus almost got stoned. You could go home and tell your friends and neighbors that you heard in church that Jesus almost got stoned. But he did 32, but Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Most people don't really believe that Jesus is who he claims to be. I mean, that was his whole experience throughout his time here on earth. In John chapter 7, flip over there to verse 1. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you were doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Look at verse 12. Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he is a good man. Others said, others replied, no, he deceives the people. And then look at verse 20. You are demon possessed, the crowd answered. So his brothers didn't believe in him. The leaders wanted him dead. One of his own disciples turns on him. Many in the crowd doubt him. People were divided about who Jesus was. And of course, we're still divided today. Barna Research, they did a study asking, do you act, uh, what do you believe about Jesus? Was Jesus God? And most people believe that Jesus existed. Only 56% say that he is God. And even of that 56%, the vast majority of them certainly won't live in light of that great truth. And you'll see we're losing ground because the millennials are already at 48%. They love the idea that Jesus might be a religious leader of some sort, some sage or you know, even a great mystic of the faith. They don't want to see him as God. And we'll see this trend continue because we're so past being a Christian nation. We are a way, a post-Christian nation. One of the most foundational truths of Christianity and the, the majority of people, if they believe it at all, it's just mental assent. Many of them now are saying it simply isn't true. So the Bible makes the claim that there is in fact an all-powerful, all-wise, all-good God. 
and you can know him in Jesus because there is a God. Now we want to add to our mini creed the next phrase, there is a God and you're not him. This is key. This is so important. So turn to your neighbor and make sure you tell them there is a God and you're not him. That's it. Turn to your neighbor. Turn to the person on your other side because they need to hear it too. There is a God and you're not him. Now, at first, of course, we go, well, I mean, come on, come on. Of course, I'm not God. I mean, duh. Like, nobody really thinks that they're God. I mean, come on. But, but when you go back into the story of Genesis, you see that this is really the lie that the serpent used against Adam and Eve. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 4, he says, You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Now, here's the thing. I don't think Adam and Eve for a moment thought that when they ate of the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, that poof, suddenly they were going to take the place of God. I don't think they thought, now I'm going to be the creator and he's not. And now I'm going to be all powerful and I'm going to be able to create worlds and create people just like he did. I don't think that that's what was going on here. They weren't, simp- they, they weren't thinking that they were going to become the all-powerful God. I think they wanted to become God-like. They wanted something that wasn't meant to be theirs. Because remember, the way they got into the, the sin, the, re- the, the temptation had to mean something, okay? That's, that's kind of what I'm getting at. It had to be something that they were actually being attracted to for it to be a valid temptation. If it wasn't, they never would have participated. They never would have been been drawn into rebellion against God if it wasn't promising them something they really wanted. So what was it? They wanted to be God-like, and the way they exercised it was by deciding to do whatever they wanted. God said, don't eat, and they said, we will eat. (laughs) They think that's how they become God-like, because I get to decide. I get to be in charge. And that's the type of God-likeness that we are pursuing. And I think that's what we still want. I think that's still a temptation for us. And I think we still get sidelined and sidetracked and get turned upside down and inside out because of this desire to be masters of our own fate. See, at first, this little mini creed, it looks like really bad news because we really do want to run our own lives. We want to be in charge. We want to decide when and where we will listen to Jesus. He says this, you know what? It's like a buffet. I'll pick what I want. I'll take what I like. I'll leave the stuff I don't. Just because he said it, it doesn't matter. I'm in charge here. I don't need him telling me what I want to do. It's not how I want to live. I don't know that I can trust him with those kinds of decisions. I see something, I want something, I take something. That's the way we go. If I don't feel good, well, then I'll self-medicate with any variety of addictions that Jesus says stay away from. But I have to feel good, so I do it. She's in my field of vision, so I gawk. 
and I objectify because that's what I want to do. Those people, they're different from me. I don't trust them. It doesn't matter what Jesus says I should do. I don't want to, so I won't. I want all of my money to be spent making me happy, to make me secure. I want all of my time to be spent on my hobbies, on my work, on my life. I want to downplay my sins. This is the lie that gets into our hearts. This is the, these are the things that it, it tells us, how we can be godlike. Listen, those are just mistakes you're making. They're not really sins. They're not a big deal. You don't need to worry about them. You don't need to repent. Come on, these are just, it's who you are. You're a high D. You're an ENTJ. That's your personality. It's what you're like. I mean, come on. People will understand. It's just a mistake. Don't make a big deal about it. And God says, really? I feel like I want to make a big deal about it. Because I feel like these are the sins that are moving you away from me. See, when we are godlike in this way, when we decide that we're masters of our own destiny, when our fate is in our hands, then we're ultimately in charge, then we continue to move away from the God who created us. There is a God, and you're not him. He's holy. We're sinful. He's perfect. We're anything but. God's love never fails. Ours can hardly make it through the day intact. To recognize that there is a God and that we are not him means that we have to do one of the most difficult things the human heart ever faces. We need to surrender. We need to surrender to Jesus. And this we find incredibly challenging. This is what the brothers of Jesus did not want to do. This is what the crowds and the religious leaders, they didn't want to do. They didn't want to yield to Jesus. They didn't want to surrender. They didn't want to give him full and complete and unfettered authority over their lives. And neither do we. We love the idea when you're reading through the scriptures and you have all of these warm, fuzzy theology points, right? Like God loves you. He has a wonderful plan for your life. Don't worry. God will forgive your sins. He always forgives sins. Just, you know, look to Jesus. He'll forgive your sins. You know, be a friend of Jesus. And we love these things. And there's a whole lot of truth in the scriptures for all of those things. But they're only part of the truth. There's a whole other, there's a whole other uh, grouping of these teachings that I think we sort of skip over or we sort of forget them because they make us more uncomfortable. It's when Jesus says things like, you need to surrender. That you're a sinful and a stubborn and a rebellious people. That you spend most of your time and energy being self-centered. That you're blind to your worst sins, that you need a transformation of the soul. You need to confess. You need to repent. You need to surrender. I want to add one more phrase to our little creed, but I want to change a few of the other words so that we can take it home with us in a little more personal way. There is a God, I'm not him, and he adores me. And he adores me. Look at John chapter 7, verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty 
come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Can you imagine the scene, all the people, all the crowd, the bustling of the festival, and Jesus stands up and he yells out, if you're thirsty, I can give you the water your soul needs. If you're living in a parched land, if you're feeling all crusty around your soul, I can give you living water. That's what he wants for us. To refresh us with this living water, this all-powerful, all-wise God, he adores you. He has this incredible design for you. He's not content with simply satisfying your soul. A river will flow out of you into a land that is parched. You will become a source of refreshment for a dried up world. That's his hope. That's his desire. That's what he sees for you. Not even that he'll help you along a little bit and give you a 2018 that's a little better than last year. That's not it. We think way too little. Jesus is saying, no, you, don't even be, you can't even begin to understand how much I have for you, how much I adore you, how much I love you. We're exceedingly valuable to God. That's what the whole of the gospel tells us. That's why we talk about the cross of Jesus so much because it's at the cross that you begin to understand what you are really worth. You know, you ask, how do you find the worth of anything? What is, how, do you, how do you determine what something, is, how valuable something is, right? So you take any sort of a painting, right? You can take a painting like this and you could say, what is it worth? Well, there's one way you could do it. You could just add up the materials it costs to make it, right? You could say, oh, well, there's a, you know, there's a little bit of canvas and there's some oil paints and a couple of brushes and, you know, some solvent to clean up and a little, you know, a little try, you know, a little stand or something for it. And so, it, you know, it's like 50 bucks. You know, you, I mean, is that how you value something? You just add up, you know, its components of what it costs to buy them and now suddenly you know something's value? I mean, how do you know? This this is actually a, a very famous painting. It's the Salvatore Monday, which is Latin for Savior of the World. That's at one of my New Year's resolutions, 2018. I'm going to use more Latin phrases because I want you to think I'm smart. So that's, that's my goal. You heard it here first. 2018, more Latin phrases. This is by Leonardo da Vinci. It's dated to about 1500 A.D., 1500 AD, shows Jesus, Renaissance garb, he's got the little blessing thing he does, which I can't do with the fingers, and he's holding the, the sphere of the cosmos in his hands. So how do you determine what this painting is worth? What's its value? You know, I, 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 all right, so I have a half-use stick of, of chapstick here. This is my chapstick. So what is this lip balm worth? How do we determine the value of it? Like if I told you it's worth 10 bucks, you're going to give me 10 bucks for it? Because if you do, done. Here it is. If you want my half, some of you are like, you could give me 10 bucks and I'm not taking your lip balm. I'm going to touch that thing. But you know, how do you determine? Like, so let's, so let's, all right, we're auctioning it off and let's say it actually sells for, for 10 bucks. I mean, how do you determine? Is it worth 10 bucks? I mean, how do you determine what something is worth? How? There's only one way. It's what, it's what someone is willing to pay. 
Guess what? If somebody here buys this for 10 bucks, I can tell you exactly what it is worth. 10 bucks. And we might all think you're an idiot for buying it, but it would be worth 10 bucks at that moment. This painting is worth $450 million. It is the most expensive painting ever. It trounced number two by millions and millions and millions of dollars, hundreds of millions, I think. It is worth, come on, it's nice and all. $450 million, I mean, Leonardo, great guy, good job, I'm sure. $450 million, Jesus is up in heaven going, are you kidding me? You paid $450 million for that thing? Unbelievable. You might even think he's a fool to buy it. Certainly whoever buys the chapstick, he would. But the value has been determined. What are you worth to God? Well, what did he pay for you? It's the cross. He exchanged his son for you. He said, you know what? Rather than you die for your sin, my son will die for your sin. Who does that? How does that make any sense? In fact, you might even think he's a fool. You might even say it doesn't make any sense because quite frankly, you're not worth Jesus. And I'm not worth Jesus. In fact, this is the really hard part of the gospel to understand. The rest of the stuff in the Bible makes it, this is, that's easy to believe in compared to this. This is what takes genuine trust and faith that, that the creator of the universe, the all-powerful God, that he adores you so much that he declared you of infinite worth and value. He put a price on you that not even you can begin to believe. We have to take it on faith and trust that it's really how he feels about you. You see, now we begin to experience what it means to surrender to this kind of a God, to surrender to a God who adores you like that. And once this truth sets in, it becomes really hopeful news. We get to become the person that you want to become. You're never going to get there by focusing on yourself. As long as we try to be like God, as long as we try to maintain control of our lives, and as long as we keep ourselves at the center of our existence, we're never going to begin to let this great truth transform our hearts I mentioned this book by uh, John Ortberg, The Me I Want to Be on Facebook, just this last week. And yes, I know, I'm finally on Facebook, 2018, 10 years late. I get it. I heard all the comments. But I am. 2018, I am going to try Facebook out. So I posted this on Facebook to let you know this is the book we're using for this series. And John Ortberg, he has a quote from here. He says, you are not your handiwork. Your life is not your project. Your life is God's project. God thought you up, and he knows what you are intended to be. Is that the you that you want to be? The one that God intends you to be? Surrender is the pathway to that. Because God is determined to make you the best possible version of yourself. To be made new, to be transformed, to be filled with God's spirit. Another quote from John Ortberg, he said, Life is not about any particular achievement or experience. The most important task of your life is not what you do, 
but who you become. Jesus wants you to become. He wants you to become who your heart really longs to be. And you know, it's not going to be found in in money or in security, and it's not going to be found in your work or in achievements, and it's not going to be found in merely doing good deeds. It's not going to be found in your family or your spouse or your kids. It's not going to be the number in your retirement account and the plaque on the wall and, or the picture over your fireplace. The world needs people who will have a river of life flowing from them. It desperately needs them. And Jesus wants that to be you. That's his plan. That's his desire that you will go into this world, that you will represent, rightly represent your heavenly father, that you will bring his love and his hope and his mercy to a world that desperately needs it. So I want to ask you a question. Where do you stand on the question of Jesus? Where do you stand? In John chapter 7 and verse 43, after there's a whole lot of debate, who is he? Is he a Messiah? Is he David's descent? Who is he? It says in verse 43, thus the people were divided because of Jesus. The people are divided. They always have been. And they always will be. Even in this room, the people are divided. There are some of you who have said, yes, I will surrender my life to Jesus. No matter what that means, no matter what his plan is for me, I'm going to surrender my life to Jesus. And there are others here who are saying, I am simply not there. I'm not there. I'm not yet sure. I don't trust him enough. I haven't yielded to his love. It doesn't matter that he adores me so. Where are you on the question of Jesus? Will you surrender your life or will you try desperately to maintain control and authority yourself? We're still divided. I'm going to ask the band to come up and they're going to lead us in a song and bring us into the table of communion. But I'm also going to, before we move into those times, I'm just going to lead us in a prayer of surrender. And for some of you, this prayer is going to be a prayer of recommitment. You're like, you know what? I want to get 2018 underway. I want to, get it, I want to do it right. I'm going to be uh, this kind of a person. I want to surrender myself anew. Great. It's going to be a prayer of recommitment for you. For others, I'm hoping that this is a prayer for the very first time, that you're saying, you know what? I've never actually done this. I've never really committed myself and decided to follow Jesus no matter what, to really surrender to him. And if that's you this morning, I'm going to ask that you listen to these words and that you're going to pray them kind of in the quiet of your own mind and you're going to just say it in that way. Actually, no, I'm going to do something different. I didn't do this at the first two services. What I'm going to do is I'm actually going to have us all pray it together. And for some of you, I'm going to have you just repeat it after me kind of phrase by phrase. Just pray it out loud. And for some of you, I'm hoping that this is your decision, that today will mark the day that you have decided to surrender your life fully and completely to him. You know, we had baptisms today. What do you think this is about? You could sum it up. This is the story of three people who have made a decision to surrender their lives to Jesus. That's what it is. To yield, to trust. Maybe you're up next. Maybe you were here this morning for this reason. Because God is doing a work in your heart. And maybe he has been for a long time. 
Maybe this is your day of surrender. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask that you guys, all of us here in the room who are willing to pray it out loud with me, we'll just go kind of phrase by phrase. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know that I'm a sinner and I can't save myself. I trust that Jesus died for my sins and declared me infinitely valuable to you. I surrender my life to you. Please take control of my life and lead and guide me. Help me to yield my selfish ways to you every day. May I stop trying to be who I want to be, but instead make me the person you want me to be. May this year be the year of heartfelt surrender and true freedom. Amen.